Uh, and I'd like to invite you to, uh, to the presentation today, uh, Pragmatic uh, Solutions for Security Legislation. Now, as I, I have uh, been around a little bit, uh, I was with Deloitte & Touche for 10 years as a consultant, had the opportunity to, to visit uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of IT shops and meet with uh, both the IT operations as well as the security and audit uh, groups of those corporations, including such companies as uh, U.S. Bancor, uh, uh, Pacific Core, uh, Microsoft was one of my clients, uh, down to little mom-and-pop operations that only had one part-time programmer that came in two or three days a week. So it's given me a, a lot of opportunity to do that. I am the Chief Information Security Officer for UC Santa Barbara as of January 5th of this year. I've been with UC for about 10 years now. Most of that time has been at the office of the President uh, as the Director of, uh, of uh, IT Audit uh, for the entire UC system. Uh, I also spent a little bit of time with, uh, uh, with the hospital group that has later become a uh, back part of the UC, uh, the, the San Francisco um, uh, Hospital uh, Experiment. And we now have uh, Merced represented. Thank you, Greg. So we've got all campuses. This is great. <laughs> so what I want to do today in terms of giving an objective, uh, in terms of developing a, an approach to pragmatic answers is, is to um, understand some of the security legislation. I'm not going to try and cover all of it, but just try to understand uh, the approach they, they take. Uh, identify some of the issues. Understand a workable approach to dealing uh, with that. And then uh, uh, implement solutions and then, uh, then to try to, that will try to meet the, the standards of legislation. Un unfortunately, when you think of legislation, uh, it's something that has gone wrong and the legislatures are, are actually uh, looking for an answer. Uh, but the security officer's role, and I feel this very strongly with myself, and I feel that other security officers are that too, is, is to, to help enabling the use of technology. It's not a barrier to the use of technology. I, I think, I, when I think earlier in my career, there were attorneys that uh, you'd take a problem to them and they'd, and they'd, they'd come up with some legal reason why you couldn't do that. Uh, but they wouldn't give you a solution. And, and uh, security officers can fall into that same trap because there's a lot of things that people can't do. They're going to be putting the institution in danger. And so it's important to understand that when they come to you with a problem, the answer is not to say, gee, you can't do that, but rather to work with them in a way that they can do things to successfully uh, get to where they need to go. Um, getting back to legislation. Uh, legislation doesn't work in a vacuum. Uh, people are not happy with something. They go to their legislatures. Legislatures are happy when the people aren't happy with something because now they can make laws about it. Uh, the laws then result in regulations, and then the regulations then get revised uh, by the courts. It's not a perfect system, uh, but it is a system that we live in. And if you can think in terms of many of the types of legislation uh, that we've run into, they have actually come out of dissatisfaction with people. This is, this is because of rights that we don't have, because of problems that we've run into, and other issues. And so the starting point is really understanding what is giving rise to the legislation. It doesn't happen in terms of an absence of... Um, 
uh, of things that are happening within the environment. So given that the legislation is going on as a, as a dynamo out there, creating new stuff every day, our IT environment also doesn't stay static. Uh, there's increasing use of the Internet. There's increasing threats from overseas. Uh, there's more security legislation telling us what we can what we can't do. Uh, there, there are fewer dollars to work with. Does anybody have more dollars? Okay. <laughs> use really fewer dollars within the UC system to try and, to try and get it done. A couple of bright things is that, the, the, that there is so much going on in this area that compared to a few years ago, uh, there are companies that are making money uh, developing security tools. If we had more money to buy those tools, I'd be a lot happier, but there are at least some tools out there compared to what there were before. And I'd like to think that with the change in the environment, there is a greater appreciation uh, for the security issues and problems as we move forward. Uh, there's no doubt in the today's world uh, that security does have a price tag that can be added to it. Whereas as short as 10 years ago, when I would talk to people about security issues and security problems, uh, there would be no reference in terms of dollars. Talk to anybody that's had a security breach, and they can put a dollar value to that pretty quickly. Uh, if not your own, uh, somebody else within the system. I mean, you know, UC had a large breach, and you just look at the, the amount of money that they spent on the communication, the, uh, the setting up the... Uh, uh, the answering the call banks, and then the other issues that are there long before we get into any issues of, of litigation or of getting attorneys involved. So I think there is a greater appreciation for it. Now, the general approach that I'm going to talk about today is to, uh, is, to, is to start by understanding the intent of the litigation. Now, this wasn't an original idea from me. I wish it was. But I was watching the Office of General Counsel in terms of how they deal with that. And a lot of what they do is they start out with, you know, what was this in legislation intended to do? What was it originally about? And this gives sort of a framework of where it was going. Instead of just looking at just what the rules of the legislation are or somebody else, else, else's digested uh, uh, summary of that. But if you understand the background and where the legislation was coming from, it can give you a little bit of a framework in terms of going it. The next is understanding the business needs, and that is what is the, what is the person trying to accomplish, apply st strategies, perhaps even standard strategies, and then maintaining a solutions-based attitude. So a few of the uh, pieces of legislation I'm going to talk about today, and these should not be strangers to any of you. Uh, the first is FERPA, or the Buckley Amendment. The second is HIPAA. The next is Graham Leach Bliley. Uh, the next is FACTA, or the red flags, which we're currently facing today. We have an extension for right now, but uh, we are facing that today. And, of course, 1386, which is uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, favorites within the state. Uh, uh, it's actually state privacy, but I, I, I've always referred to it as 1386, and I'm assuming almost everybody else has, too. Now, if we consider the context of what we're dealing with in the United States, we have no rights of privacy granted to us by the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. We have a right to bear arms. We have rights to uh, uh, freedom of press. Uh, we have uh, other rights that are granted to us, but there are no granted rights to us in terms of privacy. Now, this is true in the state of California because actually the state of California's Constitution does provide the right for life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and privacy. It's one of only three states in the United States that provides that. So as you start talking about privacy legislation and issues of that, particularly as it concerns the government, 
this is a relatively new area in which we're dealing with. And a lot of what security has to do has to do with these privacy pieces that they're trying to put together in a way that makes sense for the individuals. Now, back in 1973, which is where the giving a rise from where FERPA came from, uh, if you think back to what that environment was, we were just coming out of a, of a horrible war, the Vietnam War. Uh, the, uh, there was probably more alienation between the generations at that time than there has been any time before or since. Uh, Vietnam War was not a very uh, good situation. We were then dealing with a president that had committed illegal activities. They'd actually, he'd actually broken into uh, the, uh, the opposing candidate's uh, uh, area, and, and of course Watergate was a result of that, and uh, in 1974 uh, Nixon uh, then resigned. So this, this was a fairly turbulent period. There was also a concern in that period because unlike in previous periods, computers started to come to their own. Now, they aren't like what they are today, but you started to have the beginnings of large databases, large systems, Social Security, IRS. Uh, a lot of these organizations were starting to develop large databases, and there was the potential of starting to look at those databases across applications. And so there was a concern related to, to rights at that. And they came out with a, uh, they had a study group. This was presented to Congress in terms of what privacy rights should include. And those privacy rights are, is that there, that there should not be any systems keeping personal information whose existence is secret. Now, they, of course, that excludes FBI systems, but if a company or an organization or a government agency is going to keep information on individuals, the existence of that system should not be a secret. The second is there must be a way for that individual to find out what information is being kept uh, about him. Um, the third is there must be a way for the individual to prevent information that was obtained for one purchase purpose to be then taken and used for another purpose. So in other words, when I give my information to my bank to get a loan, that information shouldn't be taken and repurposed uh, to, 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 for a political purpose, uh, for a candidate, uh, for, a, uh, uh, for another type of vendor uh, who's maybe selling cars, finds out I'm, I'm good, uh, good at that. But the information gotten for one purpose should be used for that purpose and not necessarily repurposed for something else. Uh, there must be a way for an individual to correct and amend the record of the identifiable information about them. It seems, and, and last, any organizations maintaining, creating, or using, or disseminating the records of identifiable must assure the reliability of that information for the data that's intended to, for use and to make reasonable precautions. Okay, so we have the background of the large computer systems coming into place. We have this privacy issues, that, and these privacy issues have sort of, in my mind, sort of stand the test of time. They're fair. I mean, this is what's right about privacy. Uh, you have a government uh, that is uh, going through uh, a great deal of turmoil. You have a, a president that's, that has then resigned. Uh, so, in a sense, you have sort of a collision of a whole bunch of things come into place. And in 1974, there were two key pieces of privacy legislation that came out. One of those was FERPA, and the other, the other of that was the privacy legislation in 1974 that deals with state agencies and social security numbers. I'm only going to cover FERPA for this. Now, uh, FERPA... 
uh, FERPA uh, was com comprised with all this. Rights of citizens, concerns of big government, computer systems for maturing, Nixon resigns, giving sort of the end of that, uh, end of that era. Ford comes into, into there. Surveys and data, this scientific information and analyzing the data was starting to become common. And there, there, remember, there's no rights to personal or privacy, and so people are moving their legislatures to do that. One of the pieces of legislation uh, is that people wanted to know what was in their educational records. If you went to a school in the 60s and you asked to see what the school had in your educational records, they could deny you access to that. You couldn't see it. They'd share it with other schools, they'd share it with colleges, but you couldn't see what was in there, and you didn't have the rights to make any corrections to that. That seemed to be rather unfair, so a senator by the name of Buckley, a one-term senator of the Conservative Party, uh, proposed uh, legislation. Now, did he go through the traditional way? No, he didn't. He did like what is being done nowadays. He got this attached as an amendment to the then uh, funding bill that was signed by Ford. Now, it was so quick and so by the side that people really didn't see it go in. In fact, he came back with Pell three or four months later and had another bill to then amend some of the language. But essentially what that bill did, and, it, and most of what that, the fundamental piece of that, which is to provide fairness, it gives her an, a right to inspect and review educational records for the individual uh, or the parent if the person is a minor. It gives the right to challenge the content. You can't change it, but you can challenge the content of those records. Consent requires for disclosure of, of those. And so if the, the organization is going to disclose it to someone other than a select group of, of specifics, then it requires that. It provides exceptions uh, by, uh, by the, to the prior written uh, consent rule. In other words, you can consent for those records to be given to another school, another organization, but there are a number of exceptions which, you, which it provides for those records to be given to other organizations without that consent, but it lays those out. And, uh, and like many pieces of legislation that were happening at that time, instead of providing, uh, uh, saying if you don't follow this, there are going to be fines and penalties, they essentially just said, folks, we give you a lot of money. If you're going to be participating in taking that money and you don't follow these rules and regulations, we will withhold that money from you. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a civil suit type of issue, but that's how the entire FERPA structure is put together. It's a recipient of funds to enforce. Now, as I said, the FERPA, Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act of 1974, had been known for a number of years as a Buckley Amendment because it was an amendment to another bill. It, was, it didn't go through the same type of back and forth negotiations and things like that as a normal uh, congressional bill. Now. Given that as a background, you can sort of see why they would have some of the pieces that they would have. Uh, now, that's FERPA. So you see they're coming out of a, a level of privacy. They're coming out of giving people rights to records, which they previously didn't have, a way to correct that, and then it gives a number of exceptions. Now, let's jump over to the HIPAA. It's also, uh, it contains a, a number of things. But this is, this is the mid-90s at this point. Um, mid-90s were a period uh, uh, also of, of rapid expansion and change. Computer systems by this time had taken on an entirely different role from the 70s. They were and had the potential for this. They were also dealing in the mid-90s with escalating medical costs. Uh, 
I would have wished they had gotten it under control in the 90s. We wouldn't be facing it again today, but it is still, still the case. Um, and the idea was is let's use computers to share information about our about our, uh, our, our medical history. Because if you're a doctor and you're working on someone, uh, it, the more information you have about that person, I think, the better it helps them uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to be able to treat that person. Um, now, uh, the, one of the main things that they did is they provided a transaction code set, which enabled everybody to start talking in a common language to how they pay their bills. So the, the idea was is to, is to make this health system to where you could, it was portable, it was accountable, it was administratively simpler to work with. And in talking with, uh, uh, in talking with one of the guys in our health center, it actually has obtained some of that. The, the dealing with, this, with the insurance companies is a lot more straightforward and a lot of pieces like that. But at the same time they did that, they realized that health information, especially in the mid-90s, that there are certain aspects of that that are very, very private. And so they wanted to provide guidance to them. And uh, so as a result, you had your, your security rule, uh, which, was, which then came back. And they were very specific within the regulations in terms of what you had to do. You had administrative rules. In other words, you had to train your people. You had to, um, you had to provide physical safeguards. Uh, you had to provide technical safeguards. All of those which are, are relatively laid out in a fairly straightforward manner in the final regulations uh, of, the, of the HIPAA rule. And then a, a short piece uh, is that they're going to have an, that they had an enforcement rule there. Uh, there again, if you're not following this, if you fail to follow that, it's not that they withhold money. It's not that the United States doesn't give the health institutions a lot of money. But they actually are going to come back with fines and penalties. It's a different type of law. It's covering a different type of area. And it's covering a different direction in terms of where they're going and what they're trying to accomplish. Because what they're trying to accomplish is not to make everything private in the health, but rather to provide a way for our systems to work more effectively and efficiently. And as a, as a, as a, as a, as a side piece off of that, they realize if they're going to do that, they have to keep the information private where it needs to be kept private, and it needs to be kept secure where it needs to be kept secure. Okay. Privacy rule. Um, of course, like any rule and regulation, it doesn't stay still, including American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 1909, otherwise known as the Stimulus Package, which came out this year. Now, this is, HIPAA has had a number of, uh, of amendments and, and regulations ever since it's been, uh, but this year they came out with a change. It requires a notification on covered entities. So if you're a HIPAA entity, you disclose information uh, you uh, then have to notify uh, the people in which you uh, uh, in which uh, in which information was uh, compromised. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the HIPAA. Or, or yeah. When I, when I trade with the hospital, is that, is that well, the, one of the one of the things within the HIPAA. And the HIPAA regulations is you can go to the hospital and you can, or you can go to the health covered entity and ask them uh, to disclose who has this information been shared with. But this is specifically related to breaches of data to, uh, to uh, unauthorized uh, parties.
And so if you have an unauthorized party that's gotten, uh, gotten that, you have to notify them that some, an unauthorized party got access to the information. And in addition to that, um, you have to report that breach uh, to the uh, uh, to the secretary. It depends on how many you have or whatever. Uh, if it's just a few, you can wait until you have, I think it's uh, uh, 500 or so, you, then you can, you can report them all as a, as a group. Or if it's a large breach, you have to report it immediately to the secretary uh, 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 of uh, Health and Human Services, I believe. Is. Yes? <coughs> Well, that's a, that's a good question, and I, I don't specifically have the answer for that. But if you had a breach 10 years ago and you just found out it to, about it today, I don't think this law applies because this law was just passed, and uh, and, and actions that happened way in the past uh, were not covered under that. I think this is sort of a, uh, a 2009 go-forward type of thing. Now, uh, the same is also true, you know, we have the corresponding state law related to the notification. Oh, good point, good point, yes. Yes, uh, that's a good point, John. Uh, if the breach happened 10 years ago, but, but the, the breach is continuing, and data is continuing to be lost, including up to today, we would have to notify the folks related to that because it's a continuing breach, and we would want to go back and notify them. So, so. Now, uh, the, the next law I'm going to cover is Graham-Leach-Bliley. And uh, Gramm-Leach-Bliley uh, is, a, is, is a very interesting piece of legislation, uh, particularly in today's world. Uh, the main purpose of Gramm-Leach-Bliley was that uh, 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 Citibank, uh, a large commercial bank, and uh, travelers, uh, Citibank wanted to buy travelers. You know, Citibank, big Dow uh, company, uh, wanted to buy travelers, and, and uh, unfortunately, under the Glass-Steagall, uh, act of uh, 1933, 34, something like that. Uh, part of what they tried to fix with the with the uh, uh, with the crash in, in, in 29 is they passed a law uh, restricting what banks could do, and part of that was uh, dealing in certain types of insurance and other companies and and uh, uh, selling stocks and selling uh, securities. Well, banks. In the 90s were growing, and they felt that they were more sophisticated. Uh, the world has changed, and so essentially uh, they proposed to Congress, as a Citibank and Travelers, that they were so strong and mature that, uh, that they didn't need the protections of Glass-Steagall anymore. And they were able to convince Congress to actually pass Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and as a result, Gramley's by the act, taking away part of Glass-Steagall uh, that restricted them from, from growing into larger corporations because they were more sophisticated back in, back in the 90s and, and into the 21st century. And, uh, but Gramley's Bliley took some of those controls and spread it out saying, you know, regardless of what type of financial transactions you're doing, if you're doing financial transactions such as making loans, uh, such as uh, providing credit, now you need to provide those same type of things for uh, uh, regardless if you're a bank or not a bank. Well, the university makes loans, uh, mortgage loans in particular, and so we fall under those requirements underneath the, the, the uh, uh, 
Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, uh, meaning that you had, to, you had to identify an individual to, responsible for the safeguards. You had to uh, assess the risk uh, of handling that information. You needed to test the processes that you had, and you needed to change the safeguards. Um, as an aside, uh, Citibank ran into a little trouble. Uh, they're no longer on the Dow. Uh, one of the first things they spun off was uh, Travelers, and Travelers replaced them on the Dow uh, top, top 30. So uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, my thinking is that maybe they, maybe they weren't quite as on top of, these banks weren't quite as on top of the, uh, of the, the restrictions, and maybe Glass-Steagall was playing a role there. But anyway, I'll leave that for other discussions. It doesn't have anything to do with too much with, uh, with the security. Now, the other thing that started to come up is that we're dealing with identity theft. Identity theft is a problem. It's a problem because uh, not so much that somebody steals your identity and they go off and, they, and they're living life fine, but rather you have a group of criminals out there that have developed over the last 10 or 15 years that uh, would steal identities and that would get credit in your name and the person whose name that they stole the, the, that, and then they would... Uh, they would go off and run up all types of bills, and then you'd be trying to clean up your, your, your thing. Well, what were the reasons for that? The reasons were because there was a lot of information that was out there. All you needed was a Social Security number, uh, an address, and a telephone number, and maybe a face. I'm not sure if you really needed a face to get credit. There was a lot of lax credit being given. Uh, it, people were, were, were too, too willing to do that. Uh, they were too willing to reactivate dormant accounts. People were too willing to change the name and address. Too willing to process a request for credit cards. And so uh, the, the bad thing is, is, you know who suffers is you and me. Who doesn't suffer was the issuance of that cheap credit. So uh, thus, uh, Congress enabled, enabled FACTA. Now, there are, two, there are two parties that are going on with this. One is the state of California, also in dealing with the same issue, felt that if they could choke off the information uh, to that, because Social Security number was one of the key pieces of information, that, uh, that they could keep identity theft from happening. Congress took the other approach and said, okay, we're going to attack the... Uh, attack the uh, the, the credit side of this. And so you see where they're coming from on this in terms of the, the red flags. And this is probably the uh, most common one that I'm dealing with. Now, 1386 wanted to choke off the information that you needed to get that information. So if you had a breach of a computer system, which everybody's thinking, you know, these thieves are working through computer systems, they're getting the data, um, social security number, driver's license, California identification, account number, medical information, health insurance. So the purpose of 1386 was not to tell us if you have a breach, it's there, you've got to notify people, but rather the intent was, the intent of the law was to reduce identity theft. Now, identity theft is still continuing because they, they really didn't do anything to address the problems with credit, but the federal government did. So now we have the federal government coming in with the FACTA guidelines um, to, to address these specific issues here and we, as a university, because we, we extend credit, we, we set up accounts for people, our students or our customers, and almost every campus has some type of account mechanism in place for them to use for local charges and things like that, we fall under, under this. I don't think the university has been real lax in terms of granting credit. In fact, I, I, I challenge, I, I, have there been any identity people to open up fake accounts here at the university? I don't know. Uh, 
uh, on our campus who are looking, I don't know that we have, uh, have seen any. So you've got two sides of the same problem. Of course, uh, uh, you know, you should do the notification and give the people a heads up. But the thing about 1386 is different than, uh, than, the, than the federal legis legislation. Is it, is it provides a defense in terms of lawsuits. Normally, normally the only way you can do a lawsuit is if you have a contract with somebody and they fail to deliver or, or, or they fail to, uh, to perform uh, in terms of a third party. But you don't really have a contract uh, with someone who maybe has your information when, and it gets disclosed. But if they notify, uh, and so the law gives you a right to sue that person. The, the key with that suit, that civil lawsuit, which is fairly interesting, is it does not provide, it provides that you can sue for actual damages. It does not provide for treble damages, and it does not provide for punitive damages. So the way I read that is what the legislature is telling me is that when you do a notification, what you're doing is you're telling the people out there, say, uh, go out there and, uh, uh, and notify them. Now when they come back and they say they've suffered actual damages, you've already put them on notice. You've already put a piece in terms of the defense. They have a harder time coming back and saying, well, yeah, you notified me that my, my credit was, but I didn't bother to watch it or do anything about it or anything else. And so uh, as, as I see the 1386, the notification provides a, an insulation against those civil suits. Now, the fact of and some of the other laws related to Social Security information are, are a little different. Uh, if you're working as an agency of the government and it's a, under the 74 law, there actually is a fine uh, and a, uh, uh, going to the organization and to the individual, which is a 74 law. But that, in that case, the individual and the, and the organization are both liable up to about $1,000 per person. So... Uh, uh, so if you're working with any agencies in terms of sensitive information, sort of keep that in mind. I know that some of the researchers on the campus that I'm at uh, do that. So red flags, public law uh, directs the agencies to issue joint in and the detection and mitigation of identity theft. So we're going to catch these identities when they try to open up the accounts, and I think that's probably a pretty good thing. Okay. So the organization, including ourselves, have to put guidelines in place, and we have to uh, uh, then uh, provide a mechanism that when someone comes in and starts providing false identity, uh, false uh, credentials, that we have a mechanism of uh, arresting that person and moving forward uh, in a way that, uh, that uh, uh, is designed to reduce the likelihood of, uh, of that identity theft. So, FTC regulations, relatively straightforward, you know, which we're getting swept up into. But the credit, the credit unions, the banks, everybody else is also having to, to follow this. We, we're, we're under the FTC regulations because we're not a bank. We're not a bank holding company. We're not a credit union or not any type of financial institution that's regulated otherwise. And so they have sort of a catch-all for those, for those organizations, which we fall into. And the key is to identify what accounts are covered, identify what a red flag is. In other words, if somebody comes and gives you a false ID, I was talking with our police captain the other day ago, 
And, you know, you think of false IDs as being pretty rare. Well, you know, students apparently have a pretty good access to false IDs, not so much for identity theft, but I think for, for drinking. Uh, he was telling me he had a stack of fake IDs on his desk because what would happen is a person would go to a liquor store and, and present an ID, and the person looks at it and looks at the person and says, you know, I just don't think you're 36. Uh, uh, and uh, they, they, they usually hand on, hang on to him and hand it back to the uh, to the police department. He was telling me that, that the holograms, the, the, the documentation is there. So fake IDs are not that hard to, to get. But the idea is, you know, be aware of that. As you're opening up an account, be aware that, gee, is this person real? Is the credentials he's providing uh, make sense for what you're doing? And if it isn't, don't just push it back over there, but hang on to it and take the steps to arrest the guy and stop the identity, stop the identity theft in the tract of why it was happening, because that was considered to be a, a way that that could happen. Uh, by the way, the uh, university's program is not only follows this path, but it also had a requirement that, that the program and the existence of that program and the results of that program are reported to the highest uh, governing body within the organization on an annual basis. Uh, I believe it was in January that that initial report was made uh, to the regents in terms of us, the university, developing a plan uh, for that. And so all of the campuses have been moving forward. I'm assuming all the campuses. I know our campus has. I listened to them present it to the regents. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's not, a, it's not, not a, a, a trivial issue. Uh, so the key steps uh, to a solution. Now, we've, we've walked through some of the legislation in terms of where they were coming from on that legislation, what they were trying to accomplish. Now, the other part of that is that you're, you're dealing with, uh, with the individual who has a business ob objective. He wants to get something done. And hopefully, uh, he's going to be doing that in an efficient and effective way using computers. So... Uh, the first piece is to understand the business objective. Second is understand what some of the standard strategies of that, and then to work towards uh, uh, work towards a solution-based approach. So, when you're working with an individual, the first thing is to understand what law, what laws relate to the information that he's looking together. In some cases, it's one law. In some cases, it's several others. Each of the laws has a different direction in terms of where they're going. And understanding that direction, I think, is, 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 is absolutely key. Because if, the, if you're trying to set something up so that people don't steal identities, it may be entirely different than if you're trying to set something up uh, to preserve privacy, uh, save embarrassment, or try to do something else in which... Uh, which the law may have uh, some other requirement, uh, such as uh, standards for making loans or whatever. But understanding which laws apply to that in terms of the area that they're dealing with. Uh, the, uh, and then focus on what the user's need is. The idea of the security professional is to identify solutions, not to, not to throw up roadblocks. We will see those roadblocks. You know, they'll say, well, gee, I want to take social security numbers put it next to their grades, and put it on the web. That way they can look at their social security numbers and see it right there. Well, no, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing you'd say. It's the first thing I'd say. <laughs> but the, the key is, is they want to communicate grades to the individuals. And so what's the way that we can do that in a way 
that is safe, secure, provides reasonable protection, and doesn't expose uh, the university or, uh, or, or someone else in terms of providing a violation to, to what it is. And so the, the, the thing is to then take a step, a step back, ask what is it what you're trying to accomplish, and then knowing what requirements you can't do, then try to structure that in a way that, that, they can, that they can then accomplish that. Maybe in some cases they can't. Maybe in some cases what they want to do is ahead of where the technology is and ahead of what we can provide in a secure fashion. In other areas, there may be a solution that works. The key is to focus on the user's needs and hold back on the solutions. If it's, if it's once, it's been 100 times, I've had somebody come to me and say, I've got this problem, uh, and before they're finished even telling me what their problem is, they tell me what their solution is. You know, 15 years ago, it was, I have this problem, and I know that a, that a three-tier architecture, relational database, GUI front-end is going to fix it. Well, today, they come to me and say, I've got this problem, and I know if I can encrypt what I'm working with, the, the data files that I'm working with, uh, that that's going to be the answer. Well, we as security professionals realize that encryption is a very strong and powerful tool. But without understanding what their business need is and how they're going to do that, we need to back it up find and get them back talking what their need is, what they're trying to accomplish, before we jump to what the solution set's going to be. So if you can articulate the problem and then look at alternate solutions in terms of, in terms of what's there. So essentially what I'm saying is, and this is, this is pretty standard, do a, do a risk assessment, ask what they're trying to accomplish, identify what the assets are that they're trying to use, and, and say, you know, identify what the threats are to those assets. Uh, for example, if it's social security numbers, we know that identity thieves want to get to that. If it's an insurance number or private, uh, personal private information, it may be a different type of threat uh, to that particular information. And uh, identify what vulnerabilities that system has. So in other words, if you're going to put it on a certain type of Windows machine, we need to be thinking that, gee, it has to have virus protection. It has to have uh, patches up to date. It may need to have some type of access uh, software to, to fit into that place. But the key is to identify where it is, what it is, what they have to accomplish. Now, the best answer when you're dealing with restricted information, and restricted information covers all of the categories that I've involved here, is to eliminate it. If they cannot put social security numbers or they cannot put uh, that health information, uh, not use that. It then saves a lot of trouble. I don't know if you've ever gotten a, uh, I don't know if you've gotten a, a note for being sick lately. My, my wife had the flu and, and uh, she had to go to the, go to the, uh, go to the uh, uh, urgent care. Uh, I actually think she had swine flu, but they didn't test her, so I can't say. But uh, uh, went to the urgent care and, and it wrote a note. The note says uh, that, uh, uh, that Deborah Hines was to remain out of work until such and such a date. It gives no indication that she was even sick. It gives no indication except for the date that she was to, was to return. Uh, and this, because that's all the employer really needs to know. The employer, by the way, uh, is, is one of the organizations that's not covered under HIPAA. But the, the, the covered entity, which the doctor is, when he provides that note, he doesn't say what the cause was. 
He doesn't say because of the flu, because of a cold, because of bronchitis, uh, because of a broken arm. Uh, or in one, in one case I went, I had a broken, a broken, a broken ankle. Uh, no, it didn't say because of a broken ankle, he will not be able to be at work for six weeks. It ignores that. It takes the information and eliminates it from that, thereby eliminating the risk of a, of, a, of a HIPAA violation because one of the things they want to do with this health information is they want to share it among parties that need it, but don't share it with parties that don't have to have it. So uh, separate restricted information from the main application. Have a main application that uses the information, but maybe part of that restricted information is something that you only need to use once or twice a month. Uh, I don't know why I always think of payroll systems. They have to have the Social Security numbers to do the, the, the monthly reporting and the quarterly reporting. But for most of the stuff that you use a payroll system with, it really is not key to, to that. So if there's some way to sort of segment it or put it over to the side. And of course, the other is to implement controls. Encryption where it's appropriate, uh, physical controls, uh, access controls, uh, maintenance of systems, virus controls, and firewalls. So. As I said, the key is, is to first understand the problem. Second is to understand the intent of the legislation that is, that is, that is there. Third is to consider alternatives, considering alternatives, and then select from the alternatives. If you don't have one that works, then, the, then you've got to go back to the other two and see, can the business problem be changed, or is there some latitude in terms of the law, and then, come, and then work back around to a... To a, to a solution. Um, the key is a lot of that is, is as a security administrator, as a security officer. The, 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 the attitude is not to say no, but rather how can we accomplish this in a way that makes, makes sense. Uh, say that what I, I tried to paraphrase uh, uh, Kennedy on, what wasn't quite so good. I uh, say not what can't be done, but rather what can be done. So. Uh, and then they um, uh, help identify good solutions based on your experience and expertise because you're bringing a lot to the table uh, when you're dealing with a security issue. You have the background, you have a, a good understanding of the threats, you have a, a fair understanding of the uh, legislation and the intent of that legislation. You also have to cross over and understand a fair amount of what the business unit or application is trying to accomplish. Uh, you try to identify good solutions based on experience and expertise. This could be from other people that you've met here today uh, and tomorrow. Uh, provide support when problems occur. So in other words, uh, uh, there, there's some security folks that I've known, they run into a problem. A lot of times that problem opens up a window of opportunity to correct things. You know, Don't run away from it. Don't say, gee, I wasn't a part of it but rather use the other direction, go in and say, okay, this is what happened. We've got to face what happened. We, we take our licks on that. But let's use this as an opportunity to go forward and fix things not only here, but fix things elsewhere also. So uh, the key is, is working shoulder to shoulder uh, that uh, if you're working with a, with a department, with an individual, if you take the, the expert approach and say, I'm the expert, this is the way it's got to be, and something goes wrong, the first thing that happens is that finger points straight to the expert. On the other hand, if you come in and say, okay, I'm going to do it, and you go down and do it, 
and you don't include them in terms of what's being done in terms of getting the, the pieces put into place, and there's not an understanding, the, the finger gets pointed to you again. The key is, is that both of you, both you as a security professional and the, the unit in terms of the operations, need to, need to both understand. You're bringing an experience and knowledge and vision in terms of what could happen and what will happen. They're bringing the business piece, and they need to understand the risks that are happening, that, that exist out there today. They may, they may or may not see that, but by the end of that discussion, they should be understand what the solution is and how the solution, why the solution is important based on the threats and risks that are out there. This helps maintain it to begin with, aside from the fact that if something goes wrong, uh, that it doesn't automatically end up with a finger pointed in your direction before you can even get in to figure out what's, what really happened. But um, that decision needs to be done shoulder to shoulder, and that's the way to sort of extend your expertise among uh, those that are your, as I see, your, your peers of uh, professionals uh, that are not in the security arena. And always remember uh, professional responsibility. Uh, as a security administrator, there may, be, there may be those in which say, well, gee, I don't report to you. I'm going to do it this way. If it is really too risky, no single unit can absorb the risk of a, of a breach or a problem. Remember back in the beginning where I said how legislation was being put into place? Well, it's, it, it continues to happen. The more breaches we have, the more the legislatures, the more people get upset, they get the letters, they call their legislatures, the more the legislatures feel, well, we're really going to tell them how to do IT security. Uh, legislating IT security is a terrible thing. The only unfortunate thing is, is not legislating IT security, when there, are when there are IT problems, it can be bad. It's perceived as bad also. So the idea is, is, that, um, is, that, uh, is that if there's a real problem, it needs to be escalated, and it needs to be escalated to a level in which is handled in an appropriate fashion. There's no single group outside of perhaps the, uh, outside of perhaps the regions uh, that can really say, yeah, we're going to take that risk. There's going to be certain to end up with a problem. So, uh, in summary, I spent a lot of time on the legislation. I tried to give some background and feedback into how they went about developing some of that legislation, some of the context of the time. Uh, that should have led directly into the types of data and types of controls uh, that they were trying to accomplish related to that. Um, I tried to... Uh, to talk in terms of not how to dissect the business needs or whatever, but the fact that you need to understand the business needs before you go applying uh, uh, strategies. Then apply standard strategies or unique strategies, or whatever works in that particular situation based on your experience, and then maintaining a solutions-based attitude. Try not to have that first thing to come out of your mouth is, no, you can't do that. Uh, but rather, you know, have it be, you know, let's talk about this. Let's see what we can do. Uh, let's see if there's an alternative that makes sense. Uh, what you're proposing is, is not, you know, <laughs> is, is, is risky, and it's risky for these reasons, and let's go to somewhere else to actually solve uh, your solution. Uh, sources of information, uh, NIST, uh, the Secretary's websites, meaning uh, uh, Secretary of Education, uh, Secretary of uh, 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 Energy, uh, Department of uh, uh, defense, uh, the FTC uh, website, a number of places like that have some good information. Other local security officers, uh, local experts on regulations and policy.
I've run through this uh, pretty quickly. Uh, still a little bit of time left for questions, I believe, isn't it? So I'm going to open it up for some questions. There's some areas that I hit kind of heavy. There's some areas I hit kind of light. I tried to get it from a different direction this time, so uh, hopefully it will give some insight and perspective to what we've been working with. Questions? Yes? Okay, um, which which regulations were those now? AB. Uh, as opposed to the regulations before uh, that were there, uh, I'm, I'm going to say in generic yes, because I haven't really researched those. I, I'm not sure if I've researched those too uh, extensively. But the question is: is does new legislation uh, fly in contrast to old legislation? And in fact, it does. Uh, we talked about privacy earlier. Uh, we talked about uh, the way things are structured earlier. Uh, now, you've got to remember when the legislatures get to working in terms of trying to find solutions, they don't consider uh, what's happened before them. And it is very common uh, for new legislation to have conflicts uh, with prior legislation. In addition to that, uh, and normally they handle this a little better, is that state law can have conflicts with what federal law has. Normally federal law or state law, they will let you know which one, uh, which one applies. Uh, the other, uh, but related to, uh, related to legislation uh, in particular, there is the uh, tension between privacy to the individuals that we talked about first thing, and the need uh, for security and, uh, and understanding, which includes quite a bit of information. Uh, this is particularly uh, noted in the, uh, the uh, anti-terrorism, uh, uh, the, the Defense Department trying to prevent uh, foreign people from attacking us. Uh, that they're saying that in order to do this, we have to, we cannot provide the, the privacy and protections. And so without being specific to those particular acts, I'm going I'm to say yes. It would be very easy for them to be in conflict. There's con continual tension on that. So, other questions? Yes. That's a good point. Uh, the question is, is, is uh, if there is a breach, uh, the law is, is proposing a five-day notification for certain types of breaches of information to get it to the individuals. Quite often, it's not possible, it's not possible to do a, a, a police investigation in that period of time. And as soon as you do the disclosure, you've, you've then opened your hands to the criminals, and so they're going to stop, thereby reducing the chance that you'll get them. Um, and uh, uh, I, I'm going to give a general answer again, <laughs> and I think one of the one of the best resources we have is uh, first of all UCLP and our general counsel, uh, and uh, that working with general counsel in terms of finding an appropriate solution, dealing with each individual breach and situation is very important. The, the the key is 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 I've covered this like you know gee all this law and everything else, but the domain of the law actually does 
belong to the legal profession. And we are fortunate enough in this organization to have legal counsel. And when you have a breach, part of handling that breach is pulling together a team of people to help make the right decisions. That team should include law enforcement, it includes general counsel, uh, it should include uh, appropriate representatives of the technical community uh, that can be working towards that, and may also include uh, advice and consultation uh, from such places as, as UCOP uh, and, uh, and perhaps your other peers in terms of how other situations were handled. So uh, the, it's, it's kind of a bad situation to be in to say, gee, I've got a breach, I've got law enforcement, I might be able to get the, to the person. Uh, the, uh, the issue is, is uh, each, each individual case is different. Uh, and my experience is there's an awful lot of gray area be before you even know that, that yeah, that the information has been um, uh, compromised. And five days is extremely, is extremely short. So, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're talking about the, this is the legislation related to the uh, health information side of the, uh, the 1386 privacy information. Yeah. Yeah. It got passed. Uh, it's also a requirement to report it to the state uh, as part of that legislation. Uh, if you're if you're a licensed entity, and uh, five days is very short. The, the, as much as I'd say, gee, the law enforcement has gotten in and, and provided. Uh, help in those situations, uh, I can't think of any case where law enforcement has been able to substantially be able to find the individuals and take action with that. And John, you may be closer to what's happened with UC, but that's an extremely rare situation. Five days is also a very short amount of time to, to figure out what information has been breached. It's, uh, yeah, to get the addresses. John? Uh, well, no. Yeah. And, and sometimes they may not have the information that you need for the notification. John, you had a. I just wanted to make a, a quick clarification, so perhaps you yeah. can repeat this. Um, can the uh, California That's a good point, John. I'm going to try and summarize. <laughs> okay. Yeah. New, new legislation has come out from the state. 
including uh, uh, health information in terms of the privacy. They also have a five-day limit in which, uh, from the point of identifying where the data has been breached, for a notification. This doesn't leave very much time for a, uh, for a, uh, for notification in any circumstance, and it certainly doesn't give very much time for a, for a uh, for the police to get involved. The good part of that is, and, uh, and as John mentioned, is that there is a convergence related to the legislation. And I've seen that already. Uh, for example, in the uh, breach legislation, originally as written, it was the custodian who had to do the, the notification. That has been changed. It is now the owner that is responsible for it. And the custodian has a responsibility to report to the owner. Now, this happened after the uh, federal legislation came out, and I went back to look at the state legislation because we were discussing this among ourselves within the UC. And, and before, because I was, I, was, I was ready to make a comment on the call saying, no, it's the custodian, not the owner. I went back to check the state legislation, and they have amended it to conform to the federal legislation to where the custodian has a responsibility to tell the owner but does not have the direct responsibility for the notification. And five, and as I said, uh, uh, five days is really very, very uh, short amount of time to even determine uh, if you've had a breach, the extent of the breach, much less get all of the uh, uh, addresses and telephone numbers and contact information that may or may not exist in the database that was breached. So it's, it is quite a challenge. Yes. Yeah. Now this that's true. Yeah. And and there there is some uh, as I remember the 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 statutes there's some latitude uh for that. Uh but when you're talking health information, uh you probably don't have as much a luxury there uh in terms of uh, in terms of that notification because of the nature of the systems and everything else. So when somebody steals a laptop and you don't know what's on it, you can let people know. Yeah, John. It's excellent, excellent question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, the question is: Is uh, have there been any civil litigations related to the breach of information law? Uh, and, I, and I look for that now and then. I'm not aware that there's a lot. John, you raised your hand. Uh, uh, But uh, it's being even six years. It still, it still is just uh, probably uh, uh, getting there. I, I only know of one specific uh, uh, lawsuit related to 1386, and that was an injunction, and uh, the judge did not hold. So, um, so there hasn't been a. I don't think there's been a tidal wave, and I think everybody is looking to to see what's going to happen there. So, yes. So you you had mentioned right at the beginning. Understanding the intent of the legislation. Yes. And it's kind of it, that's interesting to me because I get a lot of requests for data, mm -hmm. and 
I generally rely on, at least at my level, on what policies have come through, you know, through the UC chain. Yes. So I'm wondering from a from just an applying that statement, um, what I mean is is that is that just a general rule of thumb or is there some sort of a, a do, do the do the regents the question is, is, does our policy re reflect the intent? Uh, and, and, having in, and having worked with uh, Jacqueline Craig, who did a lot of the policy development, and, and John, uh, yes, I, I think there, there is an effort to incorporate within our policy uh, the requirements of the various laws, including the intent of that. Uh, now, the trouble is, is you talk about conflict, we have a security policy and we have a privacy policy, and, and, and that, that can also uh, engender in, in some, some conflict also. So uh, anyway, I'm just about at the end, uh, I think, two minutes or whatever. <laughs> so one minute, one minute, thank you. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. I'll be hanging around a little bit. If you have questions, I'll be here the rest of the conference. And so if you have any issues or questions or concerns, don't hesitate to give me a holler. Thank you. Thank you.